From the Earth to the Moon, Jules Verne, Chapter 10, One Enemy versus 25 Millions of Friends. The American public took a lively interest in the smallest details of the enterprise of the gun club. It followed, day by day, the discussion of the committee. The most simple preparations for the great experiment, the questions of figures which it involved, the mechanical difficulties to be resolved, in one word, the entire plan of work, roused the popular excitement to the highest pitch. The purely scientific attraction was suddenly intensified by the following incident. We have seen what legions of admirers and friends Barbican's project had rallied round its author. There was, however, one single individual, alone in all the states of the Union, who protested against the attempts of the gun club. He attacked it furiously on every opportunity, and human nature is such that Barbicane felt more keenly the opposition of that one man than he did the applause of all the others. He was well aware of the motive of this antipathy, the origin of this solitary enmity, the cause of its personality and old standing, and in what rivalry of self-love it had its rise. This persevering enemy the president of the gun club had never seen. Fortunate that it was so, for a meeting between the two men would certainly have been attended with serious consequences. This rival was a man of science, like Barbicane himself, of a fiery, daring, and violent disposition, a pure Yankee. His name was Captain Nichol. He lived at Philadelphia. Most people are aware of the curious struggle which arose during the Federal War between the guns and armor of iron-plated ships. The result was the entire reconstruction of the Navy of both the continents. As the one grew heavier, the other became thicker in proportion. The Merrimack, the Monitor, the Tennessee, the Weehawken discharged enormous projectiles themselves after having been armor-clad against the projectiles of others. In fact, they did to others that which they wished not be done to them. That grand principle of immorality upon which rests the whole art of war. Now, if Barbicane was a great founder of shot, Nickel was a great forger of plates. The one cast night and day at Baltimore, the other forged day and night at Philadelphia. As soon as ever Barbicane invented a new shot, Nickel invented a new plate. Each followed a current of ideas essentially opposed to the other. Happily for these citizens, so useful to their country, a distance of from 50 to 60 miles separated them one from the other, and they had never met. Which of these two inventors had the advantage over the other, it was difficult to decide from the results obtained. By last accounts, however, it would seem that the armor plate would in the end have to give way to the shot. Nevertheless, there were competent judges who had their doubts on the point. At the last experiment, the cylindro-conical projectiles of Barbicane stuck like so many pins in the nickel plates. On that day, the Philadelphia iron forger then believed himself victorious and could not evince contempt enough for his rival. But when the other afterwards substituted for conical shot simple 600-pound shells at very moderate velocity, the captain was obliged to give in. In fact, these projectiles knocked his best metal plate to shivers. 
Matters were at this stage, and victory seemed to rest with the shot, when the war came to an end on the very day when Nickel had completed a new armor plate of wrought steel. It was a masterpiece of its kind, and bid defiance to all the projectiles of the world. The captain had it conveyed to the Polygon of Washington, challenging the president of the gun club to break it. Barbicane, peace having been declared, declined to try the experiment. Nickel, now furious, offered to expose his plate to the shock of any shot, solid, hollow, round, or conical, refused by the president, who did not choose to compromise his last success. Nickel, disgusted by this obstinacy, tried to tempt Barbicane by offering him every chance. He proposed to fix the plate within 200 yards of the gun. Barbicane, still obstinate in refusal. A hundred yards, not even seventy-five. At fifty, then, roared the captain through the newspapers. At twenty-five yards, and I'll stand behind. Barbicane returned for answer that even if Captain Nickel would be so good as to stand in front, he would not fire any more. Nickel could not contain himself at this reply, threw out hints of cowardice, that a man who refused to fire a cannon shot was pretty near being afraid of it, that artillerists who fight at six miles distance are substituting mathematical formula for individual courage. To these insinuations, Barbicane returned no answer. Perhaps he never heard of them, so absorbed was he in the calculations for his great enterprise. When his famous communication was made to the gun club, the captain's wrath passed all bounds. With his intense jealousy was mingled a feeling of absolute impotence. How was he to invent anything to beat this 900-foot Columbiad? What armor plate could ever resist a projectile of 30,000 pounds weight? Overwhelmed at first under this violent shock, he by and by recovered himself and resolved to crush the proposal by weight of his arguments. He then violently attacked the labors of the gun club, published a number of letters in the newspapers, endeavored to prove Barbicane ignorant of the first principles of gunnery. He maintained that it was absolutely impossible to impress upon any body whatever a velocity of 12,000 yards per second, that even with such a velocity a projectile of such a weight could not transcend the limits of the Earth's atmosphere. Further still, even regarding the velocity to be acquired, and granting it to be sufficient, the shell could not resist the pressure of the gas developed by the ignition of 1,600,000 pounds of powder. And supposing it to resist that pressure, it would be less able to support that temperature. It would melt on quitting the Columbiad and fall back in a red-hot shower upon the heads of the imprudent spectators. Barbicane continued his work without regarding these attacks. Nickel then took up the question in its other aspects. Without touching upon its uselessness in all points of view, he regarded the experiment as fraught with extreme danger, both to the citizens who might sanction by their presence so reprehensible a spectacle, and also to the towns in the neighborhood of this deplorable cannon. He also observed that if the projectile did not succeed in reaching its destination, a result absolutely impossible, it must inevitably fall back upon the earth 
and that the shock of such a mass, multiplied by the square of its velocity, would seriously endanger every point on the globe. Under the circumstances, therefore, and without interfering with the rights of free citizens, it was a case for the intervention of government, which ought not to endanger the safety of all for the pleasure of one individual. In spite of all his arguments, however, Captain Nichol remained alone in his opinion. Nobody listened to him, and he did not succeed in alienated a single admirer from the president of the gun club. The latter did not even take the pains to refute the arguments of his rival. Nichol, driven into his last entrenchments, and not able to fight personally in the cause, resolved to fight with money. He published, therefore, in the Richmond Inquirer, a series of wagers conceived in these terms and on an increasing scale. Number one, $1,000. That the necessary funds for the experiment of the gun club will not be forthcoming. Number two, $2,000. That the operation of casting a cannon of 900 feet is impracticable and cannot possibly succeed. Number three, $3,000. That it is impossible to load the Columbiad and that the paroxyl will take fire spontaneously under the pressure of the projectile. Number four, $4,000. That the Columbiad will burst at the first fire. Number five, $5,000, that the shot will not travel farther than six miles and that it will fall back again a few seconds after its discharge. It was an important sum, therefore, which the captain risked in his invincible obstinacy. He had no less than $15,000 at stake. Notwithstanding the importance of the challenge, on the 19th of May, he received a sealed packet containing the following superbly laconic reply. Baltimore, October 19th. Done. Barbicane. Chapter 11. Florida and Texas. One question remained yet to be decided. It was necessary to choose a favorable spot for the experiment. According to the advice of the Observatory of Cambridge, the gun must be fired perpendicularly to the plane of the horizon, that is to say, toward the zenith. Now the moon does not traverse the zenith except in places situated between 0 and 28 degrees of latitude. It became then necessary to determine exactly that spot on the globe where the immense Columbiad should be cast. On the 20th of October, at a general meeting of the gun club, Barbicane produced a magnificent map of the United States. Gentlemen, said he in opening the discussion, I presume that we are all agreed that this experiment cannot and ought not to be tried anywhere but within the limits of the soil of the Union. Now by good fortune, certain frontiers of the United States extend downward as far as the 28th parallel of the North Latitude. If you will cast your eye over this map, you'll see that we have at our disposal the whole of the southern portion of Texas and Florida. It was finally agreed, then, that the Columbiad must be cast on the soil of either Texas or Florida. The result, however, of this decision was to create a rivalry entirely without precedent between the different towns of these two states. The 28th parallel, on reaching the American coast, traverses the peninsula of Florida, dividing it into two nearly equal portions. 
then plunging into the Gulf of Mexico, it subtends the arc formed by the coast of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Then skirting Texas, off which it cuts an angle, it continues its course over Mexico, crosses the Sonora, Old California, and loses itself in the Pacific Ocean. It was therefore only those portions of Texas and Florida, which were situated below this parallel, which came within the prescribed conditions of latitude. Florida, in its southern part, reckons no cities of importance. It is simply studded with forts raised against the roving Indians. One solitary town, Tampa Town, was able to put in a claim in favor of its situation. In Texas, on the contrary, the towns are much more numerous and important. Corpus Christi in the county of Nueces, and all the cities situated on the Rio Bravo, Laredo, Comalitas, San Ignacio on the Web, Rio Grande City on the Star, Edinburgh on the Hidalgo, Santa Rita, El Panda, Brownsville in the Cameron, formed an imposing league against the pretensions of Florida. So scarcely was the decision known when the Texan and Floridian deputies arrived at Baltimore in an incredibly short space of time. From that very moment, President Barbicane and the influential members of the gun club were besieged day and night by formidable claims. If seven cities of Greece contended for the honor of having given birth to a homer, here were two entire states threatening to come to blows about the question of a cannon. The rival parties promenaded the streets with arms in their hands, and at every occasion of their meeting, a collision was to be apprehended which might have been attended with disastrous results. Happily, the prudence and address of President Barbicane averted the danger. These personal demonstrations found a division in the newspapers of the different states. The New York Herald and the Tribune supported Texas, while the Times and the American Review espoused the cause of the Floridian deputies. The members of the gun club could not decide to which to give the preference. Texas produced its array of 26 counties. Florida replied that 12 counties were better than 26, in a country only one-sixth the part of the size. Texas plumed itself upon its 330,000 natives. Florida, with a far smaller territory, boasted of being much more densely populated with 56,000. The Texans, through the columns of the Herald, claimed that some regard should be had to a state which grew the best cotton in all America, produced the best green oak for the service of the Navy, and contained the finest oil besides iron mines, in which the yield was 50% of pure metal. To this, the American Review replied that the soil of Florida, although not equally rich, afforded the best conditions for the molding and casting of the Columbiad, consisting as it did of sand and argillaceous earth. That may all be very well, replied the Texans, but you must first get to this country. Now the communications with Florida are difficult, while the coast of Texas offers the Bay of Galveston, which possesses a circumference of 14 leagues and is capable of containing the navies of the entire world. A pretty notion truly, replied the papers in the interest of Florida, that of Galveston Bay below the 29th parallel. Have we not got the Bay of Espiritu Santo, opening precisely upon the 28th degree, 
and by which ships can reach Tampa Town by direct route. A fine bay, half choked with sand. Choked yourselves, returned the others. Thus the war went on for several days, when Florida endeavored to draw her adversary away onto fresh ground. And one morning the Times hinted that, the enterprise being essentially American, it ought not to be attempted upon other than purely American territory. To these words Texas retorted, American, are we not as much so as you? Were not Texas and Florida both incorporated into the Union in 1845? Undoubtedly, replied the Times, but we have belonged to the Americans ever since 1820. Yes, returned the Tribune, after having been Spaniards or English for 200 years, you were sold to the United States for five million dollars. Well, and why need we blush for that? Was not Louisiana bought from Napoleon in 1803 at the price of 16 million dollars? Scandalous, roared the Texas deputies a wretched little strip of country like Florida, to dare to compare itself to Texas, who in place of selling herself, asserted her own independence, drove out the Mexicans in March 2, 1846, and declared herself a federal republic after the victory gained by Samuel Houston on the banks of the San Jacinto over the troops of Santa Ana, a country, in fine, which voluntarily annexed itself to the United States of America. Yes, because it was afraid of the Mexicans, replied Florida. Afraid! From this moment the state of things became intolerable. A sanguinary encounter seemed daily imminent between the two parties in the streets of Baltimore. It became necessary to keep an eye upon the deputies. President Barbicane knew not which way to look. Notes, documents, letters full of menaces showered down upon his house. Which side ought he to take? As regarded the appropriation of the soil, the facility of communication, the rapidity of transport, the claims of both states were evenly balanced. As for political prepossessions, they had nothing to do with the question. This deadlock had existed for some little time when Barbicane resolved to get rid of it all at once. He called a meeting of his colleagues and laid before them a proposition which, it will be seen, was profoundly sagacious. On careful considering, he said, what is going on now between Florida and Texas, it is clear that the same difficulties will recur with all the towns of the favored state. The rivalry will descend from state to city and so on downward. Now Texas possesses 11 towns within the prescribed conditions, which will further dispute the honor and create us new enemies. Well, Florida has only one. I go in, therefore, for Florida and Tampa Town. This decision, on being made known, utterly crushed the Texan deputies. Seized with an indescribable fury, they addressed threatening letters to the different members of the gun club by name. The magistrates had but one course to take, and they took it. They chartered a special train, forced the Texans into it, whether they would or no, and they quitted the city with a speed of 30 miles an hour. Quickly, however, as they were dispatched, they found time to hurl one last and bitter sarcasm at their adversaries. Alluding to the extent of Florida, a mere peninsula confined between two seas, they pretended that it could never sustain the shock of the discharge, and that it would bust up at the very first shot.
Very well. Let it bust up, replied the Floridians, with the brevity of the days of ancient Sparta.